When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Married couple Bill and Penelope have won the genetic lottery and survived the onslaught of the shark flu pandemic, dipping into and out of the virus unscathed. In the frighteningly recognizable world of Christopher Hood's magnificent dystopian novel, The Revivalists, a new post-COVID pandemic has wiped out much of the world's population. But winning the genetic lottery and surviving after the institutions that made the modern world have fallen is a mixed bag at best. While Bill enjoys tending their garden in Dobbs Ferry, New York, and keeping a psychiatric practice alive against all odds, Penelope experiences existential anguish with the falling away of key elements of her former life. When their daughter, Hannah, Trapped by the pandemic on the West Coast when she was a student at the time of the virus emergency, reveals that she is severing all ties to her former life to become part of a cult that will close her off from her family and all that she knew in the time before, Bill and Penelope decide to attempt a rescue. Thus, the revivalists jumpstart the American road trip, but with a dash of Mad Max and Station Eleven thrown in for good measure. At turns tender and cruel, recognizable and obliterated, the world of Christopher Hood's novel introduces us to an American landscape undone by a virus, but in the process of putting itself back together in ways that draw attention to the cracks and fracture lines that divide us as Americans and humans in the moment of our own pandemic crisis. Along the way, we meet survivalists, communes, pot zealots, the outposts of the once wealthy and famous, and people starved for the physical and metaphysical connections with intimates and strangers. And in an unexpected way, this propulsive, superbly plotted adventure story also manages to be a testament to the beauty of everyday routines and to the ways that humans continue to build new forms of community, even in abject moments of disaster. The Revivalists is at its heart a complicated marriage story, 
Bill and Penelope, a mixed race couple that lived without fear of want, must understand anew the ties that bind them together and the renegotiated partnership that will help them cross an expanse of dangerous territory in which a single misstep might mean that all they have preserved from the sweep of the virus could be lost in an instant. One of the most engrossing reads of the last year, The Revivalists is a debut not to be missed. Christopher Hood is the Director of Creative Writing at the Dalton School in New York City. Welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thank you so much. What a beautiful description of the book. I'm so, uh, I feel really honored. Well, I'm I'm very, very happy to have you on to talk about this book, which utterly dominated my life for two days, <laughs> in which I sort of put aside all of my important work and just lived in this world. So I'm so glad I get to talk to you about it. We're still living with our 100-year pandemic, mm -hmm. and you were writing The Revivalists, I'm assuming, um, at a worse moment in that pandemic. What on earth made you want to write a novel about surviving the next one? Yeah, I mean, I started it at the beginning of the pandemic in those really strange days, uh, which, you know, provided some writing time, but were just so, like, unsettling. And, I, you know, I think for me as a writer, living in this other world is... Uh, a joyful thing, even when I'm writing about really difficult stuff. And it's a way of sort of thinking about and trying to process what's happening. And I, and I think more than anything, it was just this sense that what is human and lovely about us would survive, that it wouldn't just be some dystopian nightmare. Um, it would be people. You make numerous references to COVID in the novel. It felt a bit like signaling to your readers something like, oh, you thought this virus was bad. Wait until shark flu. Yeah. Um, why did you want COVID to be your time marker? Um, I think, I mean, I didn't reference COVID very much uh, in the early drafts. And my agent was like, you got to talk about COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But I do think, you know, it's the reverberations of it are really lasting. And I think it also, in a larger sense, you know, the, the difficult part of it in some ways is that it makes me despair for our ability to handle huge crises mm -hmm. um, like climate change. You know, I sort of feel like if we can't come together around like this pandemic, how do we come together around climate change? More than anything, I I just was trying to write a story about this couple. And in some ways, the setting was secondary to that, I think. I enjoy the world building, and the COVID felt essential to that. But really, I was just concentrating on the, the family. The, the dystopia as a genre of the contemporary novel is most interesting to me when the quotidian is not so dystopian. As you say, mm -hmm. yeah. you you do this wonderfully in the description of Bill's life in in Dobbs Ferry, New York. 
He keeps a psychiatric practice alive, even when most of the world's population is gone. And the everyday activities of life, coffee in the morning, shopping, which looks a little bit more like looting, yeah. um, are preserved as ways of feeling one's humanness in an inhuman yeah. time. This comes to an abrupt halt when Bill and Penelope go west to find their daughter, but I love the ordinary times. Why were they important to the novel in your sense of this world? Yeah, I think that I think that is the real stuff, right? I mean, I, it's funny that you mentioned coffee because <laughs> that became so central to the book because it's so central to me. Like I wake up every day and I'm just like, there is a clock ticking, right? And I require coffee within <laughs> minutes, right? This is so like I go downstairs and like the cats are like, feed me, feed me. And I'm like, you have to wait. <laughs> like there is a priority here and so the idea that there could be a world without coffee right so i i love writing those things because that's where we live that's where marriages live that's where and to have this sense that like okay so the world sort of ended what do we do now and and the most essential part of that as you said was was him restarting his practice. Hmm. Um, that... Those scenes were amazing with the with his <laughs> his clients in the aftertimes. Yeah, I mean they were so fun to write and heartbreaking too, um, because I, you know, I was trying to get to like this sense that okay, they're going to go rescue their daughter, and it's not really a choice right? They're going to do it, which is very much how I feel as a parent. But at the same time, it's like, this is a real loss, right? He plays this really important role for these people and, and takes it really seriously. And that, you know, you would think that being a psychologist would sort of fall away in, in the end times. But in the end, it's like, oh, no, this is actually the most important thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Because of course people need it. They need it more than ever. So yeah, I, I really loved getting to live in the world and seeing the ways that the world as we know it would still exist. Mm -hmm. This is a hell of a road trip novel. American literature is full of of great road trip novels, but The mm. Revivalists uses the stresses of this particular trip across a wasteland to shine a light on how a marriage is transformed in the absence of a child. The partnership of a marriage is something that's constantly reevaluated, and Bill and Penelope get to reevaluate theirs with each mm -hmm. stop, planned and unplanned along the way. How is The Revivalists a marriage story? So that's where, so it's so interesting. I, I, one of the ways that I wrote this book was every chapter is a direct Odyssey reference. Oh, I, wow. I did not catch that. That's amazing. So like the Delaware water gap is Scylla and Charybdis. You know, you've got the, the Lotus Eaters in Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, you have uh, Menelaus in Ohio. Um, oh, yeah, yeah you've you know so like and even the very beginning right the when they there's a house on their block that's full of dead people and in the spring it starts to smell and they have to burn it and that's the house of the dead um so playing sort of loosely with the odyssey but and originally there were 
titles and epigraphs before each chapter. And then my editor was like, gotta go. Um, <laughs> and she was right. Um, <laughs> so that was really fun. But the cost of that potentially is to create a sort of episodic narrative where it's like, here's their wacky adventure with the pot people. And then here's their dark adventure with these people. And I think that would have been a danger, except that the real narrative is about this marriage. Um, and that was what really compelled me because literature is so full of terrible marriages, mm -hmm. um, just like TV and film, right? That it, it almost becomes the expectation, um, you know, revolutionary road and, and everything thereafter. Like, it feels like there's just all these terrible marriages. And I really wanted to write like a good marriage. Um, this is a couple that really loves each other. It's not easy because marriage isn't easy, but ultimately it absolutely is the best thing for both of them and they love each other, but the, the end of the world is really hard and they're in the midst of a sort of big, big fight, right? About like, mm -hmm. what do we do? How do we think about things? We're not communicating when they start this trip. So it's a trip across the country, but in my mind, it was more a, a voyage of rediscovering one another and coming back together. Um, that's so, so that's what I was trying to do. And when, when Karen Russell sort of recognized that in her blurb, which was the first blurb we got, you know, that I got for the book, it just blew me away mm. that she really saw and said, this is one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever read. And I, almost fell over yeah that's a great blurb to come away with and and i think she's right and i and i and i do feel like that's the beating heart here yeah um and there's there's so many wonderful aspects of it but but one of the things that i find really powerful is that it's also within that story of a marriage a, a story about like the dangers of helicopter parenting yeah and, and yeah. part of the revelation yeah. that bill and penelope have on this road trip is that they have stifled their daughter hannah in sure. the years before the pandemic and that their yep. care and worries for her have made her feel like there were few ways for her to emerge from their shadow to become a full and independent person can you talk yep. a little bit about that yeah i mean i think that you know one of the challenging things about parenting is that there's no control group, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so you're like, all right, I have to make all these choices about how to parent my child. And if there were a control, right, where I can be like, well, okay, this is the result in this control group. And so I can clearly see that I should make this choice for my child. There's no control group. Like, so we're just always muddling along, making the best choice that we can knowing as well that like ultimately the kid is their own person and she's going to do whatever it is that she wants to do. So it's this strange position of power and influence and also like not at all. Um, and my daughter is younger, you know, so she still just wants to hang out with us, which is wonderful. But yeah, I mean, as a high school teacher, I see this all the time, all the time. <laughs> um, where, you know, it's, it is sort of necessarily a really complicated thing. You know, these, 
these kids are becoming adults and um boy it, it's it it makes it hard as a parent to figure out like well what do i do how do i how do i guide but also let go and yeah it's it's a hard business mm -hmm. no no doubt yeah. uh, every dystopia that comes to my mind including the wonderful one i'm watching right now the last of us includes... oh is that good i haven't oh, it's yeah it's so good so I've so good ubiquitous advertisements for it <laughs> yeah they've gone they've gone all in hbo yeah, has sure. but but it's big production values, but like the revivalists, very rich in its relationships and character mm -hmm. studies. But all of those dystopias include a cult. There's something yeah. about our fundamental need for community that is accelerated by a foundational mm -hmm. shift like a world pandemic. And yeah. cults seem to be what emerge as one form of that community. Yeah. To my mind, they put a magnifying glass up to the mm -hmm. ways in which communities operate in an inside outside paradigm, but with yep. firmer walls between who can be in and who can be out. So when Bill and Penelope realize that Hannah has joined this infamous cult, they rush across the blighted country to rescue her. Why do you think cults are so effective in recruiting people? And, and why did we always imagine their importance at the end of the world? Yeah, I think, um, I think that the world is really complicated. And that's a difficult thing for us to accept. And cults offer a false simplicity, you That's know, so that true. like, oh, no, no, it's really just this. Um, but that false simplicity, which is the thing that they're offering their followers, like, just do this and then, you know, it'll be fine. You don't have to think about anything again, right? Because this is the answer. Also leads to this sort of same boring awful outcome which is that cults just end up being machines for the subjugation of women and this certainly is the cult in this book is the same way and um so ultimately it's like you know it's like all right this is we're gonna take the world which is messy and we're gonna we're gonna make it real simple for you and that is always appealing yeah. so i think you know and and especially when like all the basic rules of the world are getting shaken up it makes sense that a cult would emerge i thought um you know station 11 also has the cult yep. center i did not read that book until i'd finished writing this one um because i knew i was like oh, okay don't read <laughs> you have to finish totally finish this book before you look at that one but i thought she did a great job too of, of sort of creating the like oh of course a cult would emerge mm -hmm. right? and i feel like um mandel gave a sort of permission structure for writers of literary fiction to start imagining what the after communities would be after a, a pandemic. Did yeah. you, uh, do you find that in the way that you encounter the other novels like yours? The book I was thinking about as I was writing was The Road. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Because I, I was sort of writing against it. You know, I think it's, it's not my favorite of his books, but I, but it's, it's good. I mean, he's an incredible writer, but it just felt so mm -hmm. like unrelievedly grim. And I was sort of like, I just don't buy it. You know, I think 
there would still be like, for example, you know, it was really fun when I realized, oh, the wild dogs running around Dobbs Ferry after the world ends would be like packs of Labradoodles. <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, <laughs> like, that's what it's going to be. And there's going to be, you know, it's just a little goofier. Um, and I think she was doing a similar thing. Um, you know, she did it through like, there'll be a theater troupe. I really was trying to write something that showed that joy would still exist and love mm. and family. And uh, I think that's not what we often expect from that genre. I mean, I haven't read a lot of books sort of that are consciously that genre. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, Zone One, Colson Whitehead's yeah. book is another great example of like, all right, well, what do we all do now? <laughs> um, zombies have taken over. All right. But also, but, you know, we're figuring stuff out. The race plays a fascinating role in the revivalists. Bill is white and Penelope is black. There are subtle ways in which this is marked in their responses to the closing off the world, but it becomes crucially important when they encounter a black woman's collective that they Mm. could possibly join, should they be comfortable with a black woman leader. What was interesting about how the racial dynamics of a mixed race couple could play out in the future collectivities of a post-pandemic world? So I think, you know, for me, I have spent a lot of time um, really thinking about race and trying to learn over the past, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And that work, you know, and it's work, it, it gets painted all the time as like somehow, you know, like in our national narrative right now as like white guilt and you're making white people feel bad and that's somehow bad and you know, what's happening in Florida right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the strange things to me is like, I feel like it's been really joyful, wonderful work. And it's resulted in some of my closest friendships and feelings of connection with other people. And so one of the things I really wanted to write was a story where race would be addressed in a real way as like a, a trauma that people have to deal with. Um, but also in the ways where it's like joyful, right? Where he's like, um, so that scene where they meet this young woman and he feels really like he really loves this moment of being with his wife around her. And uh, it reminds him of, times from their past and and then I won't sort of spoil it but it turns out that he actually sort of has a connection with her to me was you know really trying to deal with race as a real thing that is not just relevant in their marriage but sort of part of the the joys of their marriage too mm-hmm yeah that's a really nice description of it the revivalists is 
a masterclass in playing around with Chekhov's rule about showing mm. a gun and yeah. needing it to go off. There's a, there's a certain macabre logic to needing a gun once governments and institutions have fallen. But Bill and Penelope don't want anything to do with it um, until they feel like they have to. How yeah. was that tension anti-gun parents who arm themselves after the dystopia, a useful one in creating some of the structures of tension in the novel. I mean, I think to me, the, um, so I, I think I can, this isn't really a spoiler, it comes very early, but um, Bill starts his practice again by working with this cop in Dobbs Ferry who's had to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and that for me got really got this started in the sense that I think in dystopian novels, you know, there's sort of a sense of like you become a killer and that's just what you have to do. Right. And so I really, I find that super terrifying Mm -hmm. um like i don't want to die but the idea of killing someone is so horrifying and that bill our our protagonist certainly feels that way and so i think part of the tension of the book is like and so that's why it's chekhov's gun but it's also sort of the broader sense of like does this have to go off mm -hmm. you know like do are we gonna have to you know does he have to cross Macbeth's river of blood? Because he really, really does not want to. I thought it was it was handled in a much more complicated and nuanced way than in a lot of things I've read. I happen to love the book, The Dog Star, um, Peter Keller's dystopia. And uh, but one of my problems with that book is that so much of the kind of climax of the novel turns on the availability of guns and the willingness to kill a lot of people yeah. and, and to kill a lot of people to preserve territory and land, uh, which is another question that you're asking about who owns what after yeah. you know legal ownership is done um have you read the dog stars and and were you you know thinking about how to do things differently especially when it comes to the idea that one must defend one's own land yeah so i i have not read that i literally i just was writing it down on the sheet of paper here on the desk um like oh i gotta read that but i think that is you know like well even the notion of owning land is not necessarily a human universal mm -hmm. so and you you did a um podcast with matthew salis's and i think one of the beautiful things about his book craft in the real world is it reminds us that so many of the narratives and the assumptions that we make about how narrative works and how our sort of humanity works are actually cultural. Mm. And even the ownership of land is cultural. And certainly the idea that like, all right, well, what what is worth killing over? And I don't think it's really a spoiler to say that we don't, this isn't a really violent book. Mm -mm. There's a lot of darkness, but we there, the acts of violence that we see are sort of rare and shocking when we see them. And for me, that allowed the book to really be 
focused on the human relationships. And I think as, you know, I talk to my students about this all the time, that how loud you make the events of your book can sort of out yell some of the quieter and more interesting emotional complications. Hmm. Um, So if, you know, because they often are wanting to write like, you know, and then we murdered this person and we murdered somebody else and there was a murder (laughs) club and that's fun. I'm like, yeah, that that is fun. Um, But also it's a cartoon, right? It's cartoon Mm -hmm. violence. And some of the most... Some of my favorite books, TV shows, movies are the ones that actually like look at like, oh, no, this is the real this is the real implication, complication of violence. Um, Yeah, the complications of an act of violence, a single act of violence uh are are so much more rife with interesting questions than are, you know, events in which violence is, you know, supposedly necessary. Uh I, I found it a very interesting and clearly purposeful detail that you made the gun in question an AR-15. Yeah. Um, a weapon of war that's regularly associated with school shootings and the mass killings of Americans yes. in yes. our own particular catastrophe of gun violence. Uh, you yeah. you clearly wanted to signal the gun's cruel history um, while making it a necessary evil that Bill and Penelope will sort of carry it around through the, the plague times. How do the politics of our gun violence nightmare in the U.S. follow your characters into this afterworld? Yeah, I mean, you were asking about cults earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, to me, the one of the sort of remarkable things about, you know, we we if I say cult, you think of, you know, people living on a compound, right? And somebody putting the Kool-Aid together on the tray. But really, we've been seeing sort of mass psychosis. And, you know, The Onion used to run the same headline after every mass shooting. And now they're so frequent that they can't, I think. Hmm. But it was, no way to prevent this, says only nation on earth where this happens. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's just so, like, blindingly obvious. Like, it's the guns. I find it super horrifying. I gave them the gun and then they sort of had to learn how to shoot it, but really never wanted to. It doesn't make it all the way through the book. You know, there's a reality to guns, right? That they they give you a certain power and a power that could be useful in a dystopian future. But there are also limits to that power, mm-hmm. right? And And what does that power do to you if you use it? And those are real consequences. And I think we see that in the book, right? The people that have guns and are willing to use guns are not, have resigned something of their humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that, you know, right now, I think that's, I mean, I could say that's true in our society, but I think the sort of awful truth is there, the guns are so ubiquitous now that, you know, it, there's all these things that sort of just happen by accident or that people, I don't know, um, things happen and it puts people in these terrible positions. And Mm -hmm. if we just didn't have the guns, people could get help. People could, you know, it wouldn't be as tragic as it is like every day. 
Yeah, um, a huge percentage of those deaths, two thirds, are preventable deaths by by suicide, which right. you know we know from data that that people who attempt suicide and survive are very unlikely to attempt it again, and you don't get that choice with a gun. And it's as like a... you know, the person most likely to be killed by your gun is you, mm-hmm. right? And the second most likely person are the people you love most. Yeah. You know, and, and that's where, you know, people are like, well, I have this gun to protect my family. I'm like, okay, if you want to protect your family, like, how are you providing for them? Like, are you advocating for them in school so that they get what they need? Um, are you, you know, it's like a million ways we can provide for our family, but having a gun is actually not really one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, lest lest we end on such a grim yeah. note, uh, I I would uh, love for you to share some books you've been you've been reading and loving recently that you might uh, be willing to share with my audience. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of them that I read recently and loved, um, partially because it is another sort of complicated and interesting love story that's surprising. Um, like my book is uh, My Year Abroad by Chang Ray Lee, which is just, he does such an incredible job of inhabiting this, these characters. And it's just a wild story. But at its heart, it's also like a story about a family. I haven't read it, but I so adore Chang Ray Lee. Oh, he's, I, I yeah, I mean, he's, um, I, it's the only book of his that I've read. And it's just like, knocked me over and then the the other one actually this um i went to grad school with her at irvine i did an mfa in poetry Mm. um so i've actually never taken a fiction workshop i was trained to to write poetry and uh so jenny Liu, who is a uh someone i you know was in school with just came out with her first book of poems and i'm telling you it's unbelievable it's called muscle memory she is a english professor and a former mma cage fighter like a professional (laughs) cage fighter that's amazing and so this book is about like being the daughter of chinese immigrants and like navigating the complications of identity and also like choking people out And like what it means to like, so talking about violence, right? Like, what does it mean to be, to navigate these sort of cultural complexities and how you're perceived and also to like be in the ring, right? To be in the octagon. So it, it is a book um, that deserves to get talked about and read by a lot of people. Um, that, that sounds like something. I mean, I'm, I was just thinking of talking to, um, in my interview with Katie Kitamura, her talking about her brother being an MMA fighter, but to have the poet herself be yeah. one, that's yeah. a whole different deal. Yeah, no, and she's, and she's a wonderful poet. And, um, and there'll be these sort of tender, you know, sort of really complex domestic poems interspersed with these poems about you know like stepping into the cage so yeah well both of these are great recommendations and my recommendation is absolutely to run out and get christopher hood's the revivalists as i said it 
just made two days of my life just such more of a pleasure living in the world with Bill and Penelope. And I know it will do the same for you. So thanks, Chris, so much for coming on and talking um, so thoughtfully about your book. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, I, the, one of my sort of foundational beliefs about writing is it, it should be fun. And it should be fun to read. Yeah. <laughs> so that's more than anything. I was trying to write a book where I was like, really want to write something that people are going to enjoy and just fall into and want to stay. So I'm so touched. And um, I really admire the work you do on this podcast. So I was, I was absolutely thrilled to uh, get to come on and have a conversation with you. And uh, I appreciate it. Well, likewise. And thanks so much, Chris. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for me for now. My great thanks to Christopher Hood for coming on to talk about his thrilling debut, The Revivalists. You can find links to purchase that novel and all of Chris's recommendations at the website at burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, information about the podcast, merch, and ways to get in touch. Next week, I'll be talking to novelist Daisy Florin about her intoxicating campus novel, My Last Innocent Year. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.